I remember there was like this church service I went to and it was talking about like being the bridge for your family. That just stuck with me because it helped me to see that if I was able to change, then I could be the bridge for my family becoming one, essentially. And that was what I kept inside of me. So internally, I just felt like the change starts from me. I can't expect him to come here and be this perfect figure. I need to take those first steps. So he's still drinking at this point. So when I came home and if he was drunk, as opposed to me just walking out or going into my room or whatever, I would just try and spend time with him and try and show him that, you know, I'm not the same 10 year old that was always outside because of what was happening. Welcome back to Daddy Issues podcast with Harrod George Carey. Daddy Issues is a podcast exploring fatherlessness, but more specifically, fatherlessness in successful people. I want to prove that regardless of whatever daddy issues you think you have, you can achieve anything you put your mind to. Fatherlessness affects so many of us, so it's time to start listening to each other's stories and opening up this conversation as one that needs to be recognised, heard and confronted. If you like what you hear, please do feel free to rate, review and subscribe, because not only do we love hearing all your feedback, but it gets the podcast to more ears. And the more ears, the merrier. So thank you so much. I'm going to let you get on with the episode now. And I hope you have a wonderful listen. In today's episode, I am speaking to Reggie Nelson. Reggie is most recognised by the media as the young man who went from East London to the city by knocking on people's doors in wealthy areas for life advice. Reggie is an analyst for an investment management firm in London, group chair of the ACCA Emerging Talent Advisory Group, a money and business podcast presenter for the BBC, a social mobility advocate and a youth mentor for a youth organisation in East London. His experience involves previously working with the Cabinet Office as they continue to address the ethnic disparities in higher education and in the workplace. And whilst working with the Cabinet Office, Reggie was described by the former Prime Minister, Theresa May, as a persistent and inspiring young person. I'm so excited for you all to hear this amazing episode with Reggie Nelson. However, before you delve in, I need to just give you some warning about some slight differences in the sound quality because basically Reggie and I did our recording we went a bit over the hour that I'd booked luckily no one knocked on the doors and for the days after our recording it just kept niggling at me that there was just so much that I as an interviewer hadn't delved really deeply in with Reggie because of the amount that we needed to fit in and I decided to reach out to Reggie and ask him if he would be willing to come back but actually just come to my house and record with the microphones that I have here just to go into those moments a bit deeper. The problem was I'd ordered the wrong wire for one of the microphones so anyway it's just Reggie's voice that we were able to record which is the most important part obviously however because of that you'll suddenly hear maybe just a slightly bizarre shift in the sound every so often where I've inserted the odd moment of the second recording in the first recording just to add a few more layers and depth and story 
to what we weren't able to find out in the first recording. So there we go. It's an incredible episode, slightly different to usual because of my bizarre techniques behind the scenes. But you're about to listen to our potential future Prime Minister of the UK. Just bear that in mind. And the other thing is, please make sure you listen to the end because trust me, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal ending. It's not an ending, but it's an ending. It's an ending to this episode, but it's not an ending to where Reggie's going. Okay, speak into the mic just so I can see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, forty, fifteen. <laughs> Normally I'm asked what did I have for breakfast? Oh, what did you have for breakfast? Nothing. I never had don't really have breakfast. Oh. I do, but I don't. It's weird. Do you mind if it's a bit close? Yeah, go for it. Intrusive. <laughs> All up in my face. Yeah, exactly. Most action I've had in a while to be honest. <laughs> 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 oh gosh. <laughs> do you do intermittent fasting? No, no, no. Um, sometimes it's, some, it depends on the type of day I have. So if I'm like up and out, out, I probably won't have breakfast. But if I'm up and out, then I'm busy, so I'm not really focused. Yeah, you don't on, like, think about yeah. it. Yeah. Coffee? Don't drink coffee. Right. No. Tea? Yeah, I drink tea. Normal tea. Yeah, like full English breakfast. Like full tea. English, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Green tea sometimes, but mm. when it goes in, it comes out. So. so. <laughs> 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 I have to be careful when I when I drink that one. <laughs> matcha tea I've started getting into. Sorry, we will get onto the podcast. Ma- what's it? Matcha? Matcha. Like matcha leaf. It's like green tea. Okay. But it's a powder. And I think I'm going to say this and not know anything. <laughs> Maybe I'll cull this bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it, it's ca- it's caffeine in it and it gives you energy. Mm-hmm. You know how coffee can, especially for some people, it makes them anxious. Yeah. Matcha is calming. Okay. So it will make you buzzing and energetic, mm-hmm. but you actually feel calm. And my friend who started this matcha company, making matcha lattes, shout out to Piers, like shout out advert. to Piers. <laughs> but yeah, he told me that. And actually it's true. I felt really anxious like maybe a month ago and I had a matcha latte. Yeah. It calmed me down. So there we go. Maybe it was psychosomatic. Right. Gotcha. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> Reggie. Welcome to Daddy Issues, and thank you for coming on to the podcast. Cool. I'll be starting now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, (laughs) My pleasure. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. No, I feel like I already know you, though, because (laughs) I've listened to, well, three times, so thrice, I've listened to your incredible radio interview that you had on Radio 4. Yeah. So if you want to just... Fill in the listeners about that. Yeah, so I did a, a piece called Four Thoughts on Radio 4, the BBC. And that's just an episode where they invite guests to talk about something they're passionate about or to just share their story. So when I got asked to do it, I decided to do it with a twist. So I wanted to do it in a form of like a poem, spoken word. Um, and yeah, I did it, released it, and it got like really good traction and really good reviews and stuff. So yeah. I was really happy with that. Because it was incredible. Oh, thank you. It was honestly <laughs> incredible. I was halfway through doing something. Yeah. And a friend messed me go, go t- tune into Radio no right now. Because obviously she knows as well that yeah. this is what my podcast is about. Yeah, 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 but yeah. she was listening. She was like, this guy's amazing. And she was like, tune in now. And so I did. And I listened to the second half of yeah. it live. And then I re-listened to the whole thing yeah. after it was on BBC iPlayer. Mm. And then I've re-listened to it again a few wow. times. No, that's incredible. No, thank you. <laughs> but it's Appreciate amazing. It. But the annoying thing is, I now know so much about you that I want to ask. And so... Throw it at me. My brain gets a bit overloaded. Okay. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to strip it right back and go okay. chronologically like I normally do. Yeah. 
and pretend that I don't know anything about you. Okay. So Reggie, take me to the very start. Where were you born and what was the sort of family dynamic? Okay, so <clears throat> I was actually born in Holland. So um, I'm Dutch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that. Yeah, so I was born in Holland. Uh, my parents are originally from Ghana in West Africa. And they moved and travelled quite a bit in Europe. So they lived in France, Germany, Holland. That's where they had me and my older sister. I've got sisters two years older than me. So I was born in Holland. I moved to the UK when I was about four. So I started education here. So unfortunately, I can't speak a word of Dutch, which is quite annoying. I was going to say, could you speak nah, in Dutch? Nah, which is quite annoying. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty upset about that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, because it's impossible <laughs> to learn. <laughs> exactly. It's one of the things where you don't really learn it. It's just, if you know it, you know it. If you don't, I'm unlucky. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, I moved here when I was about four um, and I lived in East London. So I've lived in East London sort of all my life. Um, and family dynamic... My, I lived, when I was growing up, life was quite normal, I think. Um, I don't really remember so much when I first moved over, but I just remember having my mum, my dad, my older sister. My mum was working, my dad was working. I went primary school. School was like a five-minute walk from my house. So things seemed very, very normal when I was growing up mm. in the initial stages. And what do you mean by seemed normal? Because they wasn't. Um, they seemed normal because... Parents were both working, going to school, coming home. Um, my friends lived really, really close to me. So after school, just go out, play football, come back, eat, go sleep. Like it was just really, really, uh, it was a, a set routine for a young kid. But as you grow a bit older, you start to realize some things. So um, I think we moved well, a couple of years after to um, still a place in East London. And I got a lot older. My sister's a bit older and stuff. And you start to see certain things. So my dad. How old are you at this point? Um, I'll say I was about, I was still in primary school, so about eight, nine. So it's still young. Yeah, young. Becoming aware. Yeah, but yeah, definitely now becoming aware. Um, and I just started to see my parents drink quite a lot. Um, at first it was just a realisation in their behaviour because I didn't know what alcohol was or anything like that. But their behaviour changed and their demeanour changed at certain points in the day. And... At first, you don't really see it as anything, but as time goes along, they're like my dad will become a bit more angry. And when they were in this state, arguments will start to rise. And as a young kid, you just notice a pattern that at this specific time in the day, when they're behaving like this, arguments start to arise. And then when I was about 11, still sort of primary school, going into secondary school stage, that's when I realized that both my parents were um, sort of alcoholics growing up. Um, my dad, more so than my mum, was addicted to alcohol. I don't, I don't really remember why they started drinking. Um, I think from when I was young, that's all I could remember. So it wasn't like a, a trigger moment for, for any of them. Um, I think it was quite casual at first. My mum and dad, this is my mum's story, um, they, their parents didn't want them to be together. And they were quite young. So this was when they were in Ghana, West Africa. And my mum says that they got together anyway and set off to Europe. So they lived in France. They lived in uh, Germany for a little bit. They lived in Holland where my sister and I were born. And then they moved to the UK. And I think that transition from uh, Holland to the UK, having to sort of raise my sister and I a new country 
um, the stresses that comes with having to find employment and stuff, I think that could have been a weight on their shoulders and an outlet for them to sort of relax was probably to drink. And the more they drank, the better they felt. So they kept going and it's almost like you hit uh, a depreciation point where you only go up so far and then you sort of come down pretty quickly. I, th- I think my dad drank before. I think my dad drank beforehand because um, he he was quite a cool guy growing up. So he had like the like 80s or 90s trousers, which were like really, really flary and he would wear open button shirts. He had an earring, had a high top. So he, he was, I've seen pictures and he was like the cool kid essentially. So I can imagine that he was pretty down with it. But um, I think I, I, I if I was to, and this is all sort of speculation because I've never actually had this conversation with my, my mum. But if I was to speculate on it, I think my mum got into the sort of recreational drinking or whatever when they first met, I th- I think. My mum used to tell me that, um, I think my dad told me this as well, actually, that back in Ghana, he was quite prominent within the world of business in some way, shape or form. Every sort of news channel, he was up to date with newspapers. He was he was always digesting information in some way, shape or form. And as a kid, I hated news. I just wanted to watch my own stuff. And I just remember being so angry when I got home and was just watching the news, right? So I could see that he was quite commercially aware um, in some capacity. So that makes sense in regard to him sort of delving into the, the world business back, back in Africa. So I think transitioning from someone who was um, quite quite prominent, uh in Africa to come in here and not doing what you set out to do um I think that could have been hard to hit in as well because he worked various different jobs from security guards he'd done odd cleaning jobs and he he you can tell that you know this wasn't sort of his his American dream if, if that makes sense for me growing up I unknowingly started to navigate it my own way so when I finished school um, at this point, I've moved again, so now I'm taking a bus to school. So when I was coming home from school, I would just want to go back outside because I knew that if I stayed home, there will be some sort of argument or feud or there will be something going on at home, and I didn't want to sort of encounter that. So that was my way of sort of navigating that. What, so staying out? Yeah, so I was staying out um, with people my age, and then like everyone had a curfew around like seven or eight or whatever it was. Um, but I didn't really have a curfew, so I would go like further down to play with guys that were much older than me on my estate, mm-hmm. and um, I would be playing outside till like nine ish, mm-hmm. quite a young age, and then going home. And then by the time I get home, like get ready for bed, and then go sleep and like do that over and over again. But when I was outside a lot of the time, and you start to sort of hang around with the older guys and stuff, you get exposed to certain things, and that's when you almost pave your own way in life because when I was growing up we didn't grow up with much money at all um I'm gonna fast forward a little bit but bring me back if you want to go but my Mm -hmm. dad actually left as well Mm -hmm. so when he left because me being outside was the way for me to cope with certain things I started to look for male guidance from the guys that were older than me or the guys that I saw as being my role models because I never had a dad anymore it's just my mum and my sister Mm -hmm. so being outside quite a bit kind of led me, was leading me down a wrong path, But if I can say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Going back to the point where you realise that, okay, my parents are potentially alcoholics. Mm. Did you 
speak to anyone about that was that something that you just sort of coped with and kept to yourself or did you speak to your parents about that no um i i saw it as quite normal um and i subconsciously used football as my segue out so me being outside all the time and playing football every day i became quite good at football mm. and um at, from a young age i got spotted playing football as well so i started playing football at like youth professional youth semi-professional level at a young age so i was mm. playing like the, the youth pro game and stuff so i was pretty good yeah. and that was my sort of gateway out of everything so i didn't really speak to anyone about it i didn't really talk to my sister didn't have anyone around me that i could voice to so i used football as a way to just vent Mm-hmm. I guess how I was feeling it becomes a coping mechanism I mean everyone has their different ways of coping with different things and different experiences so I just thought that I enjoyed football and I liked football when I was young but as I've grown older and seeing the reasons why I played football why I enjoyed playing football the times I would play football I saw that it was a way for me to get away from the things that I saw around me in my household, around my area, or my estate and stuff. So for me, I was fortunate that it was football. Some people have gyms, some people have meditations, some people have various different things. But think my dad was alcohol. And how would you get to football if both your parents were either working or drinking? I'd have to travel myself. Okay. Yeah, yeah. so... So you became sort of fiercely independent at a very young age. Very young age, I was very, very independent. Um, in terms of spearheading my life and career. Obviously, my parents did things for me, like wash my clothes and that stuff. But in terms of my own career and where I wanted to get to, I guess I was very, very self-sufficient. Um, so my my dad, from a young age when I was playing football, my dad would drop me to the local games when I was playing at Sunday League, like really low level. But he actually lost his license because of drink driving. Mm-hmm. So he could no longer drop me to football. Mm-hmm. So when I was playing at a level that was a bit higher, my mum will be working or she'll go to church on a weekend. Mm-hmm. My dad couldn't drive. So I would have to get on a bus, get on a train. I would. I remember going on TFL and TFL would uh, point out like the travel mapper. So I would use the journey planner to point out how to get to the place and stuff, how much I needed on my Easter card, mm-hmm. jump on there. From like 13, 14, I was traveling to Peterborough by myself. Yeah. So I would go to um, King's Cross St. Pancras. Um, I couldn't afford the train ticket, so <laughs> I would sell um, Lucas Aids in school, mm. make about forty pound profit in a week. Businessman from the get go. I mean, un- <laughs> it's all unconscious though, because you don't really see it as yeah. being. You're just seeing it as I need to make this much for my train ticket yeah, yeah, to get yeah. to football. It's a sort of mode of survival. Exactly. When I was selling, so I was selling school. You're not supposed to, by the way, but I did it anyway. <laughs> so I sold Lucas Aids in school, made money, went to buy. That's how I funded my football kit, my boots, wow. my um my shin pads, my travel, everything football related or just me, that's how I funded it. So I'll go to Peterborough, come back, went to Stevenage, came back and that's how I sort of got into the football. And how do you think, because obviously so often, especially if you're exposed to potentially like the dysfunction of alcoholism Mm. from the two people or the one person, whoever it is that you're supposed to have as your sort of stable role model, how do you think you turned in a direction that was productive and positive and focused for yourself rather than having that exposure from the older guys who were showing you a different world that you could put that energy where you'd still like make money you're still businessmen Mm. but it would have been towards a very different outcome what do you think kept you on the straight and narrow to be honest I wasn't always on the straight and narrow and I think we're obviously going to touch on that but like 
I think the turning point for me was when I was around about 16. And I mean, me and my friends got into like trouble. Um, I had to get picked up from a police station by my mum. At this point, my dad's not living with us anymore. So it was literally my mum, my sister and, and I. Can we go to that moment where yeah. your dad left? Just yeah. so we can know that bit before um, the next bit. It was quite random or quite sudden, not random, but quite sudden. Got home and, you know, he just wasn't wasn't there. And um, I think there was times when he'd be working and just not come home. And, you know, a couple of days later, he'll come back and then won't come back again. And, it, yeah, all of a sudden, he just wasn't wasn't there anymore. So um, I How think... How old were you at this point? I was about 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 10, 11. So, um, yeah, I mean, there was always arguments at home. So I knew that... You know, if I had to think of a reason why, you kind of know why, because there was always fighting, there was always arguments, things were being thrown around the house and there was just a lot of dysfunction. So I could see why he left the house, although obviously you don't want that to happen, but, you know, you can see why it happened. So around about 11 is when he departed and it was just my sister, mum and I. He wouldn't visit often, but there wasn't like... We wasn't in touch. We wasn't in touch, but it was very minimal. Mm. So. And your mum, she just turned her life around. Yeah, yeah. The thing is my mum, like, she... She hid a lot from us. When when he, when he my dad left, she hid a lot from us in terms of the things that she was going through and stuff. Because at this point, like, yes, it was around year six, year seven, there's school trips, you have to buy a uniform, um, we're getting older, so, you know, we're my shoe size is growing at an ex- extremely fast rate <laughs> i'm growing older my clothes size is changing so she's having to spend a lot more from the times that we're transitioning mm. and she hid all of that from us like she there was times when we would have to go on school trips and like, she would ask us like is everyone going from your school and if we said yes then she would just have to find a way for us to go mm. and also now that i'm older i remember those conversations that we had when she asked us those questions and she would, you know, have to ask us when the deadline was to pay. And she would, you know, I remember the time when um, I was in my room and I woke up to go to the toilet and it was, must've been about 3 a.m. or something. And um, the living room light was off and it was just papers. I, on my door, you can see through the gap. Mm-hmm. And I just saw papers on the table and stuff and she was just sitting there crying. Oh, yeah. and um, That's heartbreaking. It was. And at that point, I'm old enough to understand what's going on now. Mm-hmm. So I knew that financially she was just just getting by. Um, I knew that she was working extremely hard and for her to come off the alcohol and just be the strong person that she was for my sister and I, like a lot of the sort of success that I've been able to to have, a lot of it stems from just her at that point being strong for, for us. What was the change that you saw in her parenting? It was just, obviously my dad's not in the house anymore, so there's no there's no arguments. Um, but I just saw someone that I could look up to. Um, because as I mentioned, when you are that age, you're subconsciously looking for a male, or for me it was a male role model, but I was looking for a role model anyway. Like for me going home and seeing her on the floor, drunk, like with the beer can on the kitchen table, having to pick her up and put her in, in her bed to her coming home from work and just like being a mum cooking for us looking after us um, us watching tv her turning us off for not doing something like she just 
became a mum and I saw that transition firsthand as, and it was from a young age as well. So that kind of gave me the encouragement because that's when I was quite naughty and that's when I really wanted to sort of change things for myself and for, for my family. But I know I wanted to change, but I didn't know how to change. And for me, just looking at like my mum working, doing the things that she's doing, getting by, helping us, that just motivated me to to do more and sort of change the path that I was going down. Yeah. And um, back to that point of when... Um, she picked me up from the station. I think that was the point when I was like, yeah, I need to sort of change things around. Um, yeah. I think because when you're growing up, you see you know, rich gangsters, poor graduates, you see the the money come fast, not personally, but you see the money come fast around you and stuff. You just think this is easy and this is something that you want to do, but there's obviously consequences to that. And I remember when my mum picked me up, we went home, and she just sat down. We must have sat down and talked for about an hour and a half. And she just explained to me. And I think that was the first time she explained to me that she's sort of struggled and sacrificed so much just for us. And it's like, we're throwing, well, not where. My sister was right. I was a mess. I labelled her as a boffin when I was growing up. She was just like, <laughs> <laughs> she was always the academic one, got good grades and was always going to go to uni and did, mm. did her thing. She was, she was, she was all right. I was uh, You were the rascal. Exactly. Um, So yeah, when we had that conversation, I think that was the point where I was like, yeah, I knew in the back of my mind that I needed to change the direction I was going in. And the direction you were going in was? Um, Just like, to paint a picture, I had two sets of friends, friends in school and friends outside of school. Friends in school were okay. It was after school, I would go to hang out with my friends outside of school. And amongst my friends outside of school at least 10 of them have been to prison at least once. Mm-hmm. Um, three or four of my friends I've lost in gag and knife crime. So if I was to go down that route, I, I say I was about 14 at time. If I was around them for two more years, I'd, I say three more years, I probably would have gone to, to prison or a lot worse things would have happened to me mm-hmm. just because of the environment that we were around. And, I always say it's very hard to aspire to be anything when, and I I don't blame them for that because it is hard to aspire to be anything when you don't see anything exist. Like mm. when we were growing up, you had three options, which were if you know music, football or crime. Mm. I tried the football thing and we're going to get to the point of, of football. So I won't talk much on it, but football tried it. Music wasn't good and criminal, you know, I knew that my mum would have never let me become a criminal. So... <laughs> <laughs> When you exploit those three options, it's almost like there's nothing left. So I knew that if I continued down that route, I probably would have, I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Yeah. So You mentioned earlier that when your dad left, mm. the sort of role models that you had were these older gang members. Mm. Do you think a lot of people who, or guys particularly, who go into that world of gangs, do you think that a lot of them do have absent dads? Is that a common theme? Yeah, I feel like, it stems from a few things. Domestic issues is one. Poverty is a big one. Mm. And I feel like the education system has a part to play as well. Um, in regard to absent fathers and like the domestic issues, amongst the friends that I, I talked to you about, the 10 that unfortunately went to prison, some of them are out now, some of them are still there, we all had similar backgrounds. We all had, and like a majority of us had an absent father. 
And I always say, I mean, I did a TED talk last year and, <laughs> and I labeled it the power of mentoring. And the reason why I did that is because when you're younger, you don't even know that you're looking for a male role model. And I was, when I was preparing for the TED talk, I really started to, I had like a, a lot of nostalgic moments with me and my friends. And I realized that a lot of us just had the same upbringing. We were all from the sort of poverty line we all grew up in the same estate we all grew up with the same sort of family issues and we channeled it in different ways mm. they channeled it in one way I was fortunate I had a talent that allowed me to channel it in a different way being football being football mm. but if I didn't have football then I would have to find a different way to challenge it and if you don't have any visibility to anything else you're only going to chat like channel it in the ways that you know yeah. and if criminality is the only thing that you know that's what you're going to be doing. Yeah. Which is why I always say like, I don't really blame them for the route that they took. Um, I mean, I understand the route that they took, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Mm. Mm. Cause it's also nuanced anyway, isn't it? As in like, everyone's got such an individual story behind yeah. why they go into something. Or exactly. Why they don't. Exactly. So you going and having that moment where your mum picked you up from prison yeah, and then she sat you down. Why did you go to prison out of interest or why did you spend a night? Just, yeah, it wasn't prison. It was a cell. Oh, was, sorry, yeah, a cell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was uh, just me and like a group of my friends finished school and um, we were like, we were like bullies. So we just started to like, were you? I, I mean, can't imagine you being a bully. Yeah, no, now I'm, I'm a changed man. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it wasn't bully like picking on people, but you know, we, we were popular. So we kind of... The cool kids. Yeah. So we kind of just did what we wanted. And um, me and my friends just, like, saw one of our... They were actually our friends, to be fair. But we just caused a lot of trouble to them and just, like... In what way? Just hurt them. In what way? Um, Like, put them to the floor and just, like... Punching them? No, just, like, we, we just... Like, yeah, we... I don't have to put it into words because it's going to sound a lot worse than it is. But like, basically, we cause a lot of harm to them. Um, By, as in, well, <laughs> like, um, bruising them up. Yeah, bru- yeah, doing all, all of that. And, um, Just for fun? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was so, <laughs> like, I mean, we got banned from, like, our road in school was, like, really long. And, like, on the... Our school, we, there was a road and there was a lot of shops on that road. And um, we got banned from every shop on that road. I remember I was with a friend and we went to the shop. And um, <laughs> my friend, like, tried to steal something. And, like, literally went in there, grabbed it and tried to walk out. Obviously, the shopkeeper's blocking him. Like, you can't get out. Mm. And um, he's literally, like, dragged him to the floor and, like, kicked him in his stomach and his face and everything and walked out. And, yeah, it's just... It's, it's, I, I think back in the now I'm thinking what were we doing but <laughs> but you were young and it's yeah young stupid silly like yeah. we just wanted to we saw it as fun right but mm. it just wasn't and to the point of being in the cell like um we was in our uniform someone saw us from their window reports us to the school CCTV yeah it was silly to do it in our school uniform but anyway so uh, we did it <laughs> And, God um, damn it! Yeah, don't do it in your screen form. So uh, <laughs> yeah, my mom had to pick me up and stuff, and um, that was like the turning point. But I think mm. that was that was when the idea of changing was in the back of my mind. But I didn't change straight away. I was still, 
Um, I think at that point, I just said, you know, I'm going to take football more seriously. But I was still around my friends and stuff like that. The real turning point for me came when um, I remember it was, I was with a group, the same group of friends and one of the older guys, we like we were in the park and another group of guys came and uh, there was like a big brawl. Like people just fighting, those dogs. And one of my friends ran, tried to jump over a fence, tripped and then got bit by a dog. Um, like people Bye. just, I can't remember the bite, but I just saw the dog like, Going Go for and it. Oh my God. some of us were running, some of us were like fighting. And I remember one of my friends, I saw one of my friends run into the shop because they saw the other f- person with a knife. Mm. And my friend got stabbed in the in like the back. And um, I was like, this is the first time I'm seeing it to this scale. Because at first it was all, it was very petty, the things that we were doing. But now it's like, wow. And I remember like going home that day, I was on the bus. And I just like crying. And I remember going home and I was like by myself. I was thinking like, this is, this is nuts. Mm. And um, my friend, another friend of mine, she was a female in school. She actually um, invited me to church. And um, I mean, my mum was a Christian, but I was, I wasn't really like a Christian per se. I mean, I believed in God and stuff, but I wasn't like, um, yeah, yeah, practicing or anything Same. like that. Yeah. And um I remember my friend invited me, so I went, and I'll never forget this day, I was about 16, I just felt like a calm, serene, just in me, like, I felt so much peace that day, and I was just like, I want this for forever, like, I don't want to, that day I just received so much clarity, and it's really hard to articulate, but that Mm -hmm. day was just, that was the real turning point for me, because I said, you know what, I want to do something better for myself, and I want to ensure that you know, number one, my family are able to get to a place where we're happy and we're financially stable and, you know, we're able to do things and not lack basic things. I wanted to ensure that I wasn't, like, doing wrong anymore. And I just wanted to take my faith a lot more seriously from that point. So... Gosh, that's amazing. That was when, like, the real 180 turn happened for me and that's when I started to... Yeah, that's when I, like, Went from Reggie the 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 rascal to <laughs> Reggie, Reggie wanted rascal. to do positive things. So yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, God, your friend also almost like a guardian angel coming honestly, in. Honestly, honestly, that yeah. that point because you know that point was when like I didn't know where I, I knew I was doing football, but you, you start to think you know if football doesn't work, because education wasn't a thing where. I focus much on anyway because when you're young and you're playing football, particularly at the level that I was playing at, your all eggs are in football, right? You're not told to focus on maths or science or English or like have a backup plan. It's, and even in school, if I didn't, I didn't really concentrate because I said I'm not going to focus on education anyway. Football is what I'm going to be doing, and because I was playing at a decent level, like the world was my oyster. You know, I could do I, I I said to myself football's what I'm gonna be doing so you know screw school I don't really care about school etc. So when I was about sixteen, fifteen, sixteen, you start to see friends that were playing at really high level getting released or not getting this thing called a scholarship when you're sixteen. Mm-hmm. And those questions start to come back in mind. Oh snap, what if I don't get this scholarship or what do, what if football doesn't work out for me? And 
at that point, I was really in limbo about certain things. I was confused. Mm. Um, I started to ask myself more questions about like my dad. And there was just so many things going on, like mm. my dad coming back, me having so many questions, not knowing how I felt, football, um, school, not <clears throat> performing particularly well there. And I think that, back to your point of like the quote unquote guardian angel, I thought like when my friend invited me to church and I started to take my faith seriously, everything just fell into place and I was like a lot more calmer within and I was like yeah now I kind of know what I need to do and to that point as well when my dad came back when he came back he was redundant so um he came back almost looking for for help and some like uh almost like shelter away from the world I guess I sort of had two feelings first feeling was I don't know why you're here. You know, you've missed so many years of of my life. Because you're now 16, right? I'm now 16, yeah. And um, the other half was like, you know, this is kind of what I asked for. I wanted a male role model. And although the circumstances are a bit different, I wanted to rekindle that relationship with him. Because I knew that not having a father around had an impact. And I wanted to rekindle that. Can you try and describe what that impact is? Little things like... Not knowing who to turn to for advice, not having anyone to talk to about things that I might be going through, like in school. Because I can't, I couldn't talk to my mum about certain things because I just felt like she wouldn't understand it. My sister, same thing. So I felt like I needed a, a man around to help me to navigate certain things in school. Um, but with other people, like peers and stuff. It, with peers, education itself. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, as a man, you encounter girls and stuff. Um, in regard to just like career because my mum is like a she's a carer and a cleaner mm-hmm. Um, sorry she was a carer and a cleaner and I, like I didn't have anyone to talk to about you know if football doesn't work for example you know right. what do I do there my dad was a football fan as well oh was he yeah yeah, yeah so he so you lost that also that father son connection exactly. in a sport that is so focused on fathers exactly. right yeah 100% yeah <laughs> exactly no honestly and dads become like unpaid agents of their sons <laughs> in football <laughs> I've been told. It's no, it's so true. It's so true. And it was just so many different things that I felt like I missed out on. And I felt like if I had him around, I wouldn't have gone through that. Like, for example, when I was in school, I got a lot of phone calls home from teachers and stuff. Like, your son's misbehaving, your son's misbehaving. And although, you know, my mum will talk to me, be like, yeah, whatever. I just sometimes imagine that if my dad was to talk to me, then I probably would have just like fixed up and I would have been able to sort of, not do some of the things that I did or go down mm. some of the routes that I, I went down and stuff. So You felt you could get away with more with your mum than your dad. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, yeah. So your dad came back. Yeah. And you had all these unanswered questions, mm. but you didn't ask them, if no. I'm right. No. Because you wanted to focus on the on, on just building Rekindling, yeah. a relationship. Yeah, yeah. What was it like for you internally to have to adjust um, the reason why I wanted to rekindle firstly was um I remember there was like this church service I went to and it was talking about like being the bridge for your family and um that just stuck with me because it helped me to see that whatever like if, if I was able to change then I could be the bridge for my family becoming one essentially mm-hmm. and that was what I kept inside of me. So internally, I just felt like 
I need to, the change starts from me. I can't expect him to come here and be this perfect figure. Mm-hmm. I need to take those first steps. So that's a very stoic approach. Yeah. You change yourself. You change yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So he's still drinking at this point. Mm-hmm. So when I came home and if he was drunk, as opposed to me just walking out or going into my room or whatever, I would just try and spend time with him and try and show him that, you know, I'm not the same 10 year old that was always outside because of what was happening. Um, I will talk to him on on a level about football, about, he was really being into news as well. So like news, mm-hmm. economy and all that stuff. So I would talk to him about things like that. We'll, we'll just have conversations about certain things and I'll just try and build that relationship with him. So at that time I signed a contract mm-hmm. um, where I was studying and playing outside of London near Woking. Mm-hmm. So um, we had to talk about that and we talked about the education side of things because he was also big on education. Okay. So he was just telling me like, make sure you focus on the education side as well. So I would take his advice on that as well. So we started to talk about a lot more things and it was that sort of guidance that I needed because if he was there to tell me to focus on education beforehand, maybe, I mean, I did pretty well in school. I didn't fly. I think I got like 10 GCSEs actually. Mm. But, um, you know, I probably would have got better grades, for example, if he was there to sort of guide me down that path. And mm. when I went into my contract, I went in there thinking, yes, I'm going to give my all to football, but I want to ensure that I'm doing well in education as well. So. And can I ask, just out of interest, why yeah. do you think, because I've heard this before, obviously, doing this podcast, especially between fathers and sons, why do you think it is that you take your father's advice more seriously than your mother's or listen to him more than you would of your mother? I think it's just dominance. Dominance and you, you resonate with people that naturally as humans we resonate with people that look like us or sound like us or have the same interests as us it's a sort of replica yeah exactly yeah and the role model yeah role model exactly so with my dad i mean we're both males we both enjoyed football um i felt like he could resonate with me a lot more than my mum just because of you know that sort of father-son relationship um although my mum again is still like one of my biggest role models but I felt like I gravitated more towards my dad just because of the those, energy. yeah, those yeah. factors and stuff. Yeah. So. And so your dad came back. You built somewhat of a lovely sort of rekindled yeah. relationship. Yeah. And then. Yeah. On Father's Day. Yeah. Tell us about that. So Father's Day, twenty thirteen, my dad woke up, came into the living room, and um, he just looked off. He wasn't looking his usual self. And then he came onto the sofa and just like collapsed consciously onto the sofa. Mm-hmm. And um And just sorry to confirm, this is him being with you for a year? Yeah. Okay. About a year, yeah. So yeah. I was seventeen. Yeah. Yeah. So when I saw him, I knew something was off straight away. So I my mum was in the kitchen, I called my mum and say, Oh, dad's sick. I thought it was just like a cough or a cold or whatever. And um Because he had diabetes. He had diabetes, yes. yeah. So um it was, uh, I thought it was a cough, cold, fever, diabetes. I just thought of the usual things that it would be because he was on medication for his diabetes. So the first question my mum asked is, look, have you taken your medication? And he said, yeah. And she could see that something was off as well. So she called the ambulance just as a safety measure because we didn't know what was happening. Um, I left because it was a Sunday, so I went to church. And um, after that, I went to the hospital. And when I went to the hospital... My mum was there, my sister was there, and a few like close family members were there. And I'd never been to a hospital before. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what... Age 17? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously, the only time I went to hospital was when I was born. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I yeah, I, I never had a, I never needed to go to hospital. Mm. My mum, because my mum is very um, traditional. So if something's high, and the first thing you do is, you take paracetamol. <laughs> the second thing you do is, um, this is like, like you know, vapor rub. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you apply that mm-hmm. if it still hurts there's so many different steps before you go to the hospital <laughs> and usually within one of those steps I, I would feel fine so i never really needed to go to hospital um so yeah 17 went to the hospital and because i'd never been to hospital i didn't know what the wards meant or what the beds meant i just thought it was a normal hospital bed and um, i'm there and i'm looking at the machines and stuff don't know what any of the numbers mean. So I generally thought, right, he's just sick. It's going to come out in like two days, whatever. Not one inch of me thought anything else. The thought of a coma never even crossed my mind. No one no one even mentioned the word coma, right? Um, but looking looking back on it, I think the, the thing that was pretty weird for me was that a lot of my family members were there. And if it was just diabetes, as, as I thought, it would just be my mum, my sister, probably one other family member, but there was like a few of my family members there. And when I was there and I saw the machines and I saw the tubes and stuff, again, I didn't really think anything of it. And I remember um, just my cousin pointing at the, the machine, looking at the numbers and saying, oh, you know, your dad's fine. That, that Those numbers were a lot higher um, before. Now they're a lot lower. Obviously, he didn't know what he was talking about. I think he was just making it up. And I was like, okay, cool. I genuinely had no inkling that it was that serious. And then that day, I remember I went home. It was a Monday. I went to football. I went to training. I went to college. And then I called my mum because I wanted to just go visit my dad. Um, so I called her for the hospital details, like the ward number and stuff like that. And then she told me to come home first and then we can go together. So I said, okay, cool. Again, I thought nothing of it. So I went home. College is two hours away. So it was a two-hour journey back home. And um, when I went home, I remember walking into the living room. My mum was sitting there with like four or five of my aunties. And the first question I have is, what's going on? Um, And I dropped my football bag. And my mum said, sit down. I was like, okay. And she just, there was like a silence. And she just said, you know, dad didn't make it. And she just started crying, like tears rolling down her face. And I sat there for about 10 seconds just trying to process what she said. And I asked her, what What do you mean? Like, dad didn't make it and stuff. She's like, yeah, he passed away. You, you get an influx of emotions and thoughts and you don't really know how to feel, what to say. And I remember just asking her the question, like, so what, dad's dead. And that, that, was, that was all I, I said. Because um, I think it's it's hard to process that you're never going to see someone ever again. And that was the, the, the thought that was that just kept coming into my head. And when I like, answered the question, I remember mom just breaking down. And that was a lot for me. So I just remember walking out. I didn't really know where I was going. I was just walking anywhere. And I just got on a random bus. And I just sat. I just sat on the bus, just started thinking. And I was on the bus about twenty minutes, and just decided to get off the bus. And I remember just ending up outside church, and I was just—I I don't know. It was like 
did I, I, I don't even remember if I planned it or it was just a thing where, I don't know, I just ended ended up there. But I remember just sitting there for a couple of hours and then the church is quite, quite big and there's different floors and stuff. And I remember there was like this meeting, um, like a little service, like a church service going on. So the church is open every day and there's different services throughout the day and stuff. And I remember just going in and sitting down and uh as soon as as soon as I just wanted to talk to someone but I didn't know I'd never been in that situation before and I had never had to be vulnerable to anyone before. So when I was growing up, like I I did I couldn't sort of open up to my mum. See my dad wasn't really around. My sister, albeit older than me, she's only two years older than me, so she's technically my age. Um so I couldn't really like talk to her about certain things and stuff. And I don't know, friends, you don't really talk about serious things with friends when you're when you're really young. So I I genuinely didn't have like a, a formal outlet to let out anything, um, when I was growing up. So when this happened, I didn't know how to navigate it. So you know are you like you know when you were a kid or you have like a, a little kid around and they're trying to call your attention for something. So they might kind of follow you around until you say what's wrong and then that's when they talk that's what I was kind of feeling at the time so um I remember going into this meeting just sitting at the back and um afterwards the pastor called me over and just said like I noticed you look down like what's up and that's when I I think I cried and I was just like yeah my, my dad's not around anymore and then he asked me to like explain what happened and stuff and I explained it. I explained it from about the um, the time when we had to call the ambulance. So I didn't go far back. I remember he him just saying like, just like everything, something along the lines of I'm gonna paraphrase it now. Just like everything generally just happens for a reason. And sometimes we think that you know our our thoughts and plans are you know the way it should be, but sometimes it it's not. And um, it's quite hard to process, but once you understand that there's a sort of, and people might believe, people not, might not believe, but you know, there's a greater being up there that almost pulls the strings on certain things. You know, he gives and he can take, and when he wants, we talked for about an hour, and I just remember leaving there thinking, yeah, I've got the strength that I needed, and it was just through a conversation, and he he prayed for my family and prayed for me as well, and again, it just gave me this strength to go home and be be strong but not a strength of like a, a false false strength where I'm really burning inside and I want to let it out but I can't because I've got to be strong it was a, it was a genuine sense of feeling okay and of course I'm still upset I'm still down however I felt okay that was like again another catalyst for me because when when that happened and I got home and I was you know in a in a sort of better headspace that's when I just started to think ferociously about what I needed to do for myself what I needed to do for my family etc and it was just me needing to be positive both on a career level personally but also positive for for my family and and yeah, I remember my mum, like, she'll go to sleep and she'll call me and just say, oh, just sit down. And she'll just want me in the room while she, like, fell asleep and stuff. And when she fell asleep, I'll go to my room. Um, so 
that period was tough on many levels because I was processing the bereavement. I had to mentally be strong for myself, but also help my sister, help my mum as well. And also find a way to provide because I've, I've, I felt like at 17 as well, being the only man in the house, there was a sense, there was an onus on me to become a breadwinner in some way, shape or form. From then onwards, I remember just skyrocketing in terms of, I don't know, just life in general. Like I, I, Procrastination went out the window, laziness went out the window. I was just so much, so much more focused on, on what I needed to do. And I think that conversation that day really, really helped just put things into perspective and gave me like an unwavering strength and hope. And I don't know, look, look, looking back on it now, I mean, this has been a few years ago now, but I see it as like, if I could have gone through that moment of hardship and tribulation and trial, whatever, then there was going to be few things that would have deterred me from life in general. Right. And, um, now I've, I've, obviously faced a few things in, 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 in life and whatever, but nothing sort of compares to that, to that moment. And for me, it's like, if I can get through that and be okay and look back on it and be like, wow, you know, things were bad, but now dead genuinely okay, then there's few things that life can kind of throw at me, I think, and will deter me from, from its course. So I think that moment was like the... I don't know the, the the strength that I needed for for my faith in in general, and I feel like from that point onwards until now, um, I've been able to sort of build on that. So uh, it's helped me in so many different ways. Uh, I think it's really interesting because you had this sort of turning point after your mum had that chat with you, having sort of released you, if you will, after from the prison cell, mm. and your friend had said, "Come to church with me." Mm. So that was like number one transition. Yeah. Or transformation mm. and then number two in the really short space of time was your dad's death yeah and having just got him back and then losing him again yeah. in such a short space of time i mean it literally gives me tingles just thinking about <laughs> how traumatic that must have been mm. what was that like yeah it was it was hard i think it was it was harder because i'm having to deal with my grief but I know that my mum and my sister are looking to me for strength as well because like my mum even I think I think she's only seen me cry once and I was at the funeral. Mm. I tried to make sure that every time they saw me I was strong. I was seen as the strong one and that's hard because you're almost harboring up a lot of what you feel and They've got an outlet. I mean, they they can just sort of lay it out and stuff. But for me, it's I don't really have a way to let it out. Is that because you're a man? Yeah, I've, it was just this sort of toxic masculinity mentality that I had at the time. And obviously now I know that you, you, you if you have something within, you should let it out. But yeah. at the time, no, it's but like... That's, I think you're speaking for so many people when you yeah. say that. So many men mm. who feel that pressure to be the strong pillar yeah. in a situation and not, you know, be the kind of in a vertical was emotional wreck that they feel inside yeah yeah exactly um so because i didn't really have a channel to let it out i was harboring so much and i because i stopped playing football i didn't have the outlet mm. so 
I didn't really know where I didn't know where I was going. I was I was at such a standstill, and I always say like I'm really grateful for my faith because that's the one thing that I just had to cling on to. That's what at the time was just giving me this sort of unwavering hope that things will somehow be okay. Mm-hmm. And for me, to answer your question of how I felt, I felt like I had to be the dominant person in the family at the time. And it was harder because my family could grieve, but I couldn't grieve in front of them. And I think just at the funeral, it was just, yeah, that's when it just all came out. And yeah. And how have you grieved? Yeah, I have. It's been six years now. Six years? Yeah, six years now. Um, And I feel like I have. Um, I mean, I can comfortably talk, talk about it. And I feel okay talking about it. Hence why yeah, I'm on, on the yeah, podcast. On Teddy. <laughs> uh, I felt, yeah, but I think I have dealt with it differently to what, number one, my family dealt with it and also other people would have dealt with it. Um, I dealt with it in a way of creating a, a totally different avenue for me and sort of used what I was feeling as almost like the petrol to keep me going and to get me from where I was to where I wanted to be. So when I look back, I think that it's weird to say this, but I'm kind of grateful that I was able to use what I was feeling as motivation to get to where I am today. Yeah. And that's what this podcast really looks Mm. at is using something traumatic and turning that into fuel which sends you in a positive direction take us to that point that took you to the streets of gloucester road so because of the event that happened my dad passing away i knew that the goal was still to create a better life for me and my family but i had to reevaluate it because if football didn't work then i didn't know what i was going to do i decided to quit football so uh, it was a two-year contract Halfway through my contract, I decided that I didn't want to play football anymore. And that's when I had to find something else to do. I remember I was in college and I knew that I wanted to be rich. <laughs> that was like, <laughs> <laughs> if I had one goal in life at that time, it was, I just want to be rich. Mm-hmm. So I decided to just research and find out, you know, what wealthy people did. You know what skills I wanted. I think at the time I wanted to know what skills they had, just so that I could extrapolate that and use it for myself. Um, but Google wasn't really giving me tangible results. So um, <laughs> Google answers were not living up to that. <laughs> it, it wasn't. No, it was. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. Funnily enough, um, so I researched in Google. You know, richest areas in London and Gloucester Road, Kensington, and Chelsea came up. So. I went over to that side of London and initially started asking people on the streets what skills. I tried to stop people in the streets and ask them what they did to become rich. And people weren't stopping to talk to me. <laughs> so, uh, um, so. Why doesn't that surprise you? Exactly, right? Excuse me. <laughs> How did you, you become just... rich? <laughs> yeah, looking back at it, it's, it's quite it's quite amusing. No, no, it's incredible. But that's also why, like, being young and not, because um, you were 17 at the time, yeah, right? Yeah, fearless. It's the biggest gift. Yeah. Because you're completely fearless. Fearless. And you had that fuel. You had that fuel from your dad's death. Exactly. And everything that came with that. Exactly. Yeah. So 
I'm asking people in the streets now. No one's stopping to talk to me. Someone gave me forty pounds for asking him the question, which gave me an immense sense of motivation. Just keep going. Right. Yeah. Um. So I'm asking people in the streets now. No one's stopping to talk to me. And then I went to the different hotels in the area and asked the people at the reception what type of people stay in these hotels. And again, I wasn't really getting the responses that I wanted. So then I decided. What would they say? I mean, some people just looked at me funny. Yeah. It's like, why are you, what are you doing? Some, <laughs> yeah, honestly. Um, Some people said celebrities. Uh, so vague. Yeah, it's, no one's, I want, like, when I pictured doing that, I was thinking someone was going to tell me, oh, you know, this person. This business. Had this business and mm. that's why he's rich or this whatever. entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. Or some things. Self-made, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But Someone not, you could be inspired, inspired by. by. I wanted to basically leave Gloucester Road and say, you know what? If I do these three or four things, I'm going to be rich, right? But no, the only thing I had was £40. And that £40 was going to come and go. So, <laughs> I mean, though it was good for the moment, it, it, was, it wasn't what I wanted. So, I decided to go and knock on people's doors and just ask them what they did to become rich. And the reason why I knocked on doors is because as people weren't stopping to talk to me, I thought, if I go and knock on doors, then they will either have to open the door to talk to me or have to open the door to tell me to go away. Either way, they will have to talk to me. So... Oh, I love this. <laughs> it's so amazing. So I went to knock on doors and their um, housekeepers, open, a lot of the housekeepers opened the door first and said, this person's not in. People were opening the door, telling me to, to go away. <laughs> you about to say it to her. No, telling me to go away okay so they did it politely oh yeah yeah wait well, some people did it politely <laughs> some just because um some of them have buzzers so mm -hmm. i buzzed and they'll come to the intercom yeah, and people are so much ruder on those intercoms. 100 yeah yeah the level of confidence it's goes like, through the roof <laughs> it's like because they can't see you they're like Fuck up. yeah, yeah I've, honestly i've done that before because i did it not anyway yeah no. i did that before so people are just telling me to go away one person thought i was going to rob him some people are saying they inherited wealth which i guess mm -hmm. is interesting but not mm -hmm. any help to me mm -hmm. And then I got to this door. So I, I pressed the intercom and uh, this lady comes to the intercom and says, oh, how can I help? And I tell her, oh, I'm just in the area, wanted to know what skills you, you had that allowed you to become wealthy enough to live in this area. Initially, she thought it was part of a school project. So she asked if, it, if I was doing it as part of a school project or if I'm by myself. I said, no, it's not a school project, I'm by myself. I just want to know what, what you did. So she uh, she came to the door, opened the door, and invited me in. So we're talking in her house now, and I'm there looking around like, oh my gosh, this is <laughs> a million pound house, this is ridiculous. I, we were talking for about five minutes, and her husband, Quinton Price, walked in. Mm. And Quinton walked in, sat down, and um, he, in our conversation, I think we were there for about an hour, he was just getting to know me and find out, why I'm doing what I'm doing. So I told him about my upbringing, my parents, my dad, my dad passing away, football, how I don't want to play football anymore. And he introduced me to finance and he essentially told me what he did. So he was equivalent to like a CIO mm -hmm. of um, a large asset management company. Okay. Well, just for listeners who don't know what that is, what's a CIO? Chief investment officer. Sorry, jargon. Sorry. No, no, I actually don't know what that is. <laughs> I was like, just for the listeners. <laughs> so uh, CIO is like chief investment officer. So he was, he was part of the like board 
at, at BlackRock. So BlackRock's yes. a, a company, at the time, uh, assets under management, which is essentially how much money they look after mm-hmm. within all their assets, at the time was $4.7 trillion. Yikes. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> breath, so when, when so it, it was actually funny. So when he told me about this company called BlackRock, um, obviously I didn't know what it was. So when I left the house, I Googled BlackRock and I went That's on Wikipedia. That's a good thing if you don't know what it is at the time, right? Yeah, like, 100%. Not even... I wasn't taken aback. Yeah. yeah. And he made it look so like, oh yeah, you know, I work for a company called BlackRock and whatever, whatever. So I Googled it afterwards and I said, you should have seen my face. I mean, trillion <laughs> like that doesn't make any sense. how many zeros is that um so i quickly came to realize that it was the largest asset management company in the world and he was a very big figure at the company so he took down my email mm-hmm. and said he'll email me it was a saturday and he said he'll email me um that following week so on the monday he emailed me and said oh black rocker doing an insight day would i like to come so i said yeah sure thing i didn't own a shirt tie or trousers or shoes mm-hmm. so that 40 pounds i got oh my god yes useful yes very useful where do you get a shirt and tie for 40 pounds and shirt, like a i got shirt tie shoes everything primark nice one yeah yeah when in doubt exactly primark, primark exactly <laughs> so um i literally that that was yeah that 40 pounds i was like okay i need to get some smart wear so i went primark bought the stuff and then i went to the inside there and I remember I had these um, these f- glasses with fake lenses in them. Mm-hmm. So to they weren't prescribed. To look I'd academic. Never, yeah, I'd never <laughs> been to this. Exactly that. I'd never been to the city that. before. I'd never been in that environment before. So I just thought smart people wear glasses. So <laughs> I kid you not, I went there and I got to BlackRock like an hour early. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there and waiting for all the other candidates and stuff to come for the Insight Day. Sorry, for those that don't know, an Insight Day is a day where undergraduates spend at the company to learn about the company network meet the people and potentially get the opportunity to apply to work for the company so i was there as a college student i wasn't able to apply because i wasn't in university but it was just a chance for me to get to see what what it was like mm-hmm. so i was there glasses on and i realized i can't keep up this image for a whole day because i were really uncomfortable because i don't wear glasses anyway <laughs> so i was like okay, i need to take them off so i took them off no one no one saw them fortunately and um that day i spent at BlackRock, I learned so much. I didn't understand a thing of what was going on, mm-hmm. but I got to understand what it took to work at that company. So I was with people that went to sort of Oxford, Cambridge, LSE, and mm-hmm. really bright people. And me being me, again, that fearless 17-year-old, I I wanted to get so much from that day. So I was talking to a lot of the candidates, just like, you know, what did you study and what grades did you get? And they were saying, oh, I've got four A stars at A level and stuff, which is ridiculous. Yeah, that is. Uh, it's nuts. It's crazy. Yeah. And um, there's me. That's like, again, I, I'm at this point, I'm still not taking school seriously. Uh, my college study seriously. Mm. But that, knowing what grades they got to get to that position, I was like, yeah, I need to turn it up a notch. Mm. So I left there. And then I managed to get a week-long work experience that summer. Mm-hmm. At Black with Rock. BlackRock. Yeah, with BlackRock. So Amazing. I spent the week there. And after that, I had a meeting with Quinton, mm-hmm. um, a colleague of his called Nathan. Mm-hmm. My mum and I were in this room. And Quinton was like congratulating me for doing a week-long work experience and stuff and just getting to where I was. But a question I wanted to ask him was, look, what do I need to do to work here? Or what do I need to do to work in a similar environment? And one thing I was hoping that he wasn't going to say was 
go to university. <laughs> and uh, he just encouraged me to go to university. He didn't force me or anything like that, but he just said, look, a lot of the people that work in this industry and particularly in this firm have gone to university, have a degree. And he would encourage me to do that just so I can become the most competitive candidate. That's when I was going to pack it in because university, my sister was always the academic. She University was always something she wanted to do. Me, I just wanted to, as, the sooner I could finish school, the better. Mm. But if, you know, at that time I said, if Quinton's encouraged me to go to university, then I'm going to go. Because so, he'd become, speaking of male role models, right? Your male yeah, role model. my role model, exactly. He, he was the person I wanted to emulate now. Um, even when I'm on my internship, because I was, I was in college, so it was weird. Everyone asked, so how did you get an internship being in college? And naively, I said, oh, um, Quinton helped. Like, I know Quinton Price. And their face, you know Quinton Price? Really? Yeah. So He's like the, a celebrity. He, the, he was like the, the head of the, that the London Don. office with like how many thousands of people, right? And had a corner office as well and his office is like the size of this this room and for anyone listening this room is amazing um, <laughs> so uh no he he was he was a big he was a big dog mm. and i didn't know how big he was so when i start started to understand how big he was that's when i was like yeah i need to i'm going to follow what he's telling me to do so i asked him what do you want me to study and he said something finance related so i went to uni studied economics and i also learnt mandarin yeah alongside that's my degree. insane and are you actually fluent in Mandarin? No, I'm not. I st- <laughs> just man- Mandarin was simply no. to. No, I know about ma- ma- Mandarin, Mandarin was a simply just to get me through certain doors and to just mm-hmm. make me sound more intelligent than I was and attractive to the Asian market, which is exactly massive. Booming. Yeah, yeah. There, there was various reasons to it, but one of the one of the goals wasn't to become fluent. It was just to get me through certain doors. Just a little blue tick. Exactly, exactly <laughs> that. So, <laughs> met to uni, economics, Mandarin, and I remember my first couple months of university was steep. Uh, first exam, I scored twenty five percent, which is a fail. Um, for those that have been to university or haven't, twenty five percent is like a U grade, is ungradable, one of the lowest in my economic cohort. And back to that whole male role model thing, I think just having Quinton there and having now having visibility to what is available for me if i do go through these three years Mm -hmm. was enough for me to sort of stop feeling sorry for myself about the grades that i got and just start putting in a lot more effort and work into it so after that 25 percent, i did another exam three months later and scored 82 percent wow how did you go from 25 to 82 i started to read (laughs) (laughs) now to be honest that 25 percent, i actually studied i Mm. i did what i Oh, okay. Was told, to, yeah. So we got like, you just didn't take it the extra mile. Yeah, I, 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 I've always had this mentality of, you know, I've done all that I could, but that twenty five percent, I, I saw that, you know, I, there was a lot more in me. There was a lot more in the tank. So, um, I got my friends. I've got a friend that lives near me. He went to a university that was closer to me, and I got his library card and I just used it and I went to study every day textbook open highlighters out and i just went into this mode i've never been in in my life it was all new territory to me and i just started to focus so much and that exam i went into that exam and you just know within yourself that look i'm going to get the i'm going to get a good grade yeah during the paper i knew i knew i was like i know the answers to this this is incredible and 
was there an element of also feeling accountable to Quentin? Or yeah, 100%. And also, of course, your mother. Yeah. But having that sort of accountability is probably a very healthy, sort of a healthy fire. Yeah. If that makes sense. It was it was Quentin, but also Nathan. So Nathan... So Nathan had, is... He's the guy that I... Remember I had a meeting with Quentin, Nathan, and my mum in this room when I was oh, discussing yes, university. Yes. So Nathan, I owe a big um, thanks to him as well because Quentin told Nathan to sort of look after me inside Black Rock for that week and also outside. Mm-hmm. And um, it's Nathan kind of like your a, mentor. He is, yeah. He, he had a similar sort of story to me. Um, he's from West London, didn't have much growing up and played ice hockey at professional level in Canada. Okay, so really similar, actually. Very Lots similar, exactly. exactly. And yeah. then he went into corporate finance. So he's someone that I looked up to as well. So mm-hmm. it was mainly him because he said to me, you know what, Th- in order for you to really do well here, you need to get good grades. And he drummed into me that, Reggie, you need to get first, you need to get first, you need to get first. And he said that to me so that I could aim for the first. And if I got the first, great. But he kind of wanted me to get the 2-1, like, at least. Mm-hmm. So I was always aiming for a first. I was like, okay, I need to get a first. I need to get a first. So when I got the U grade, I was like, damn. I need to switch it up. And I need to get a first. I need to get a first. I need to get a first. So I calculated the grades that I needed to get in order to get a first in that module and stuff. And I just secluded myself from the world and just started to study. And I managed to get 82%. And then the exam after that, I got 84%. And I managed to get 70, I think it was 72% overall for that module, which is a first class. Mm-hmm. And that's when I found myself academically. I realized that without sounding sort of arrogant, that I was bright and I was talented and I could do the things that I was being told to do from an academic standpoint. And I managed to get like internships after internships. So I did a spring week at Black Rock after that, mm-hmm. which I had to apply for and go through the whole processes and stuff. So I did that, and then I did another internship at another asset manager, then did another internship at a hedge fund, then did another summer internship at BlackRock. Amazing. And then I graduated in 2017, and that's when I've yeah been working in finance ever since. So Life changed. Life changed completely. Oh, my um, God. So, sorry, gone. No, I was going to ask, so going back to, because we're going to have to wrap it up a bit, yeah, which is yeah. so, this is why I was like, there's so <laughs> much that I want to talk about, because your story yeah. is incredible. <laughs> and this part of the story, I mean, all, every single part of your story is incredible, yeah. but this part also has so much to yeah, it that yeah. I want to talk But Luckily, Reggie is asked to speak quite a lot, so you yeah. can find like so much more of what yeah you can is, yeah. you know, your you story. Do a part two or something. Yeah, exactly. We should do a part two. <laughs> I'm down. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> But with all this newfound, well, this complete like life change and that motivation that you got and mm. Quentin coming in and being such a huge mentor to you and you now, you know, mentoring other people and the importance of mentorship, which I remember you speaking about in the Radio Full program. And if you're in a position or even if you're not, just if, if there is someone that you know you can mentor, you know, really taking that opportunity because it can completely change someone else's life. Yeah. But during all of this and you know i can only imagine how proud your mum is and your sister (laughs) yeah but have you ever thought of what your dad would think do you know what it is yeah and i've been thinking a lot more about that over the past couple years because i mentioned that he was really into like economics and like the economy and the news and stuff and when i was solely playing football i hated news i didn't stand news now I digest news every day because of the type of role that I'm in. I'm on the news. He used to watch Sky News every single day. 
and uh, I've been on Sky News and I've talked on Sky News and I just imagine like, wow, imagine he was like sitting at home watching me on his favourite TV show and stuff like that. So I do think back to, you know, what he would, um, what he would think. And um, I think I'm more, I just, I'm just grateful that when I, when I think back to that point, I, I always say that I'm grateful that I was able to rekindle my relationship with him more than anything else because remember I was I gave myself two sort of avenues one where I would be angry um ask all those questions and just kind of like disregard him and all that stuff or the other route which was build that relationship and I'm happy that I took the latter option because now that he's sort of gone when I think back to that point I'm I'm not in a mode of regret Mm. I'm in a mode of like know if you know he would he would be proud kind of thing so mm. i think for me it's just it's great to see that i've been able to sort of change things around for myself and be involved in a certain projects and things that i've been able to do and i always think back to the time when um i was uh called called in by the prime minister i say called in i was reached out yeah. to by the oh my god Theresa may yeah Can, well let's tell me about that yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll be quick so um Downing Street, so I, I did a short documentary BBC in 2018 mm-hmm. and Downing Street somehow saw it. Theresa May somehow saw it. And then she was working on this announcement called the Race at Work Charter. Said, I want Reggie to help me with this. So Downing Street contacted me. I thought it was a joke. It wasn't a joke. <laughs> and then I went over to meet Theresa May. And then we did like this announcement together. Worked with the cabinet office on a few things. Insane. Can I and just quickly ask, how did you fit at that time? How did you like manage nerves and whatever? Oh my god. It was it's it's, it's nerve wracking. It was really really nerve wracking. I I just kind of started in my career as well. Yeah. So. Because you're still twenty three. Twenty four now. You're twenty four. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you must have been twenty two then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's like insanely young yeah. to be like hanging out with the prime Yeah, I mean it's casual chat with the PM. <laughs> um, no, it was it was nerve wracking, but I think it was more nerve wracking because. Um, when I was doing it, they gave me like two questions to ask. Like, oh yeah, ask these questions. To Teresa. Yeah, to Teresa. <laughs> Teresa. <laughs> to T. Uh, to T. <laughs> to T. May. Um, is they gave me two questions, but gave me, it was a five-minute interview. So when the two questions, I, I, I thought to myself, this is not enough time. But these people work in the cabinet office; they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So I just I didn't ask any questions. I was doing a one-to-one interview with Teresa May two questions finished in like a minute and I've got five minutes and I'm <laughs> rolling questions off the top of my head like what do you think of this and trying to see out those five minutes yeah and you know luckily enough we did it we had a laugh and I even asked her to like dance and stuff oh my um, stop yeah it's, you on, asked her to it's, dance. it's, on, it's online you can watch stop, it if you want stop, to stop. <laughs> I asked her to dance I asked her for a selfie what did um, she do when she she said I should dance first <laughs> um, no I mean we're, we're cool and I had, a, I had a zoom catch up with her not too long ago actually Stop. yeah yeah no we we became like good friends like now I'm so at first you know I'm sweating buckets in my suit just yeah, trying to yeah. talk to her and stuff but now you know we literally have casual conversations um, I love like that she just came back from Switzerland not too long ago with uh her husband with a hubby yeah yeah oh my so, god that's he just amazing. got made a lord actually which is pretty funny oh did he yeah so she was telling me about that and stuff so i, I said what do i have to call you um is it lady may now because yeah. her husband's a lord and she's like yeah, please don't do that <laughs> keep with tea yeah keep with tea <laughs> so um no in terms of everything that I've, I've been able to do all the opportunities yeah all the opportunities the doors, and stuff yeah. 
everything's great, but I feel like now, <clears throat> when I first set up on this journey, it was, how do I become rich? That was the only question I had. But now it's so, it's, it's not even close to that. It's more so about what can I do to help those that are in a similar position to me. So I've got a lot of projects that I'm working on that are tailored around around that. And just being able to provide for my, my family and my mum. And like now she can just like go to Ghana whenever she wants. And she's yeah. like, yeah, go have a holiday. Like she doesn't, she she still works. She doesn't need to work because my sister and I are doing relatively well. Yeah. But she, yeah, she works. She does what she needs to do. But there's no pressure on on her to do anything. That's so incredible. It's, yeah, what it's a great gift. feeling. So, yeah. Yeah. And with, um, hang on, something that you just said that came to mind. Oh, yeah. So if someone's listening to this now and wants to, you know, know a bit more about those projects that you do do, like yeah. the mentoring stuff, where can someone look? Yeah, um, so a lot of the stuff I do are with different sort of organisations, charities and stuff. Um, if anyone wants to get involved or wants to know more, then they can actually email me, mm-hmm. um, contact at reggienelson.co.uk. I'll put that on the show notes yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, social media, I kind of try to post a lot of the stuff that I do on social media as well. And that's Reggie Nelson underscore 10 everywhere. So is that because of 10 Downing Street? <laughs> so I wish I wish I could say, so someone else asked me this as well. I wish I could say, yeah, it was my grand plan from the beginning. I wanted to be, no. So when Manifested I was, it. Exactly, no. Um, when I was playing football, I was um, I was number 10 position wise. Mm. So um, I just always. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's quite nostalgic. It's serendipitous. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Reggie, if your dad was listening to this episode right now, what would you want to say to him? I can't believe that I'm a news head <laughs> and I watch the news. But um, no, I would say that everyone's doing okay. Mum is well, sister's well. And it's unfortunate that he only saw me pre this because I guess his last memories of me was playing football and didn't get to see any any, any of these things and stuff. And I would say, you know, I hope you're proud and I hope that you um, can see like everything that I've done and will continue to do. And I just hope that, you know, I'm able to keep on this path and just help as many people as I I can. So he is definitely proud. (laughs) (laughs) I can say that. Thank you. Promise. Well, thank you so much, Reggie Nelson, for Appreciate coming on it. to Daddy Issues. <laughs> it's been amazing. Wow. Thank you so much for listening to my episode with Reggie Nelson. See, I told you to listen to the end. I told you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm acting a bit weird. But basically, I'm just so in awe of this man. I feel like now I can call him my friend. Um, so of my wonderful friend, I feel very lucky to have Reggie have come into my life from my random ad hoc cold email. If you just email people, trust me on this, they sometimes reply. It's always worth it. And that's how I got to know Reggie. And that's how Reggie got to know the amazing Quinton and Elizabeth, not by a cold email, but by a cold knock on the door. So always worth it. This is a bizarre personal outro I normally do them much more civilized and I'm so sorry but for this particular episode (laughs) I'm just gonna leave it as is I'm just ad-libbing and there we go but Reggie you're amazing I adore you I'm so excited as I said in my intro to see where you're going next and 
can't wait to see you continue to rise and thrive and help all the people that you will along your way. And wow, what an inspiring story. And yeah, everything in terms of contacting Reggie are on the show notes, as I said in the episode. And as well, obviously, if you want to contact me, the same on the show notes. So anyway, thanks everyone for listening. So much love and have a lovely rest of your day or night. Thank you so much for listening to my episode with Reggie Nelson. See, I told you to listen to the end. I told you. (laughs) Sorry, I'm acting a bit weird. But basically, I'm just so in awe of this man. I feel like now I can call him my friend. Um, So of my wonderful friend, I feel very lucky to have Reggie have come into my life from my random ad hoc cold email. If you just email people, trust me on this. They sometimes reply. It's always worth it. And that's how I got to know Reggie. And that's how Reggie got to know the amazing Quinton and Elizabeth. Not by a cold email, but by a cold knock on the door. So always worth it. This is a bizarre personal outro. I normally do them much more civilized and I'm so sorry. But for this particular episode, (laughs) I'm just going to leave it as is. I'm just ad-libbing and there we go. But Reggie... You're amazing. I adore you. I'm so excited, as I said in my intro, to see where you're going next. And can't wait to see you continue to rise and thrive and help all the people that you will along your way. And wow, what an inspiring story. And yeah, everything in terms of contacting Reggie are on the show notes, as I said in the episode. And as well, obviously, if you want to contact me, the same on the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on Daddy Issues Podcast. If you've been affected by anything at all in the episode, in the show notes, you will see a number of websites whereby you can seek support on various different platforms, including ex-podcast guest and psychotherapist Julia Samuel's website, Black Minds Matter, Calm and Grief Untangled. Warren Borg at Wargie Productions for helping me master and compress all my episodes so they sound that much better. Thank you so much for listening. Please do feel free to get in touch. I love hearing from you. Our email is on the show notes and please do follow us on Instagram at the Daddy Issues Podcast. Have a lovely rest of your day or night.